Book One, Chapter Three of Letters of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. From Tideway to Tideway, 1892 to 95. The Edge of the East. From Letters of Travel by Rudyard Kipling. The mist was clearing off Yokohama Harbour, and a hundred junks had their sails hoisted for the morning breeze. The veiled horizon was stippled with square blurs of silver. An English man of war showed blue white on the haze. So new was the daylight, and all the water lay out as smooth as the inside of an oyster shell. Two children in blue and white their tanned limbs pink in the fresh air sculled a marvellous boat of lemon-hued wood and that was our fairy craft to the shore across the stillness and the mother-of-pearl levels there are ways and ways of entering japan the best is to descend upon it from america and the pacific from the barbarians and the deep sea coming from the east the blaze of india and the insolent tropical vegetation of singapore dull the eye to half-colours and little tones. It is at Bombay that the smell of all Asia boards the ship miles offshore and holds the passenger's nose until he is clear of Asia again. That is a violent and aggressive smell, apt to prejudice the stranger, but kin nonetheless to the gentle and insinuating flavour that stole across the light airs of the daybreak when the fairy boat went to shore. A smell of very clean new wood, split bamboo, wood smoke, damp earth, and the things that people who are not white people eat. A homelike and comforting smell. Then followed on shore the sound of an eastern tongue that is beautiful or not as you happen to know it. The western races have many languages, but a crowd of Europeans heard through closed doors talk with the western pitch and cadence. So it is with the east. A line of jinrikshaw coolies sat in the sun discoursing with each other, and it was as though they were welcoming a return in speech that the listener must know as well as English. They talked and they talked, but the ghosts of familiar words would not grow any clearer till presently the smell came down the open streets again, saying that this was the East where nothing matters, and trifles old as the Tower of Babel mattered less than nothing and that there were old acquaintances waiting at every corner beyond the township. Great is the smell of the East. Railways, telegraphs, docks and gunboats cannot banish it, and it will endure till the railways are dead. He who has not smelt that smell has never lived. Three years ago Yokohama was sufficiently Europeanized in its shops to suit the worst and wickedest taste. Today it is still worse if you keep to the town limits ten steps beyond into the fields all the civilization stops exactly as it does in another land a few thousand miles further west the globe-trotting millionaires anxious to spend money with a hose on whatever caught their libertine fancies had explained to us aboard ship that they came to japan in haste advised by their guide-books to do so lest the land should be suddenly civilized between steamer sailing and steamer sailing when they touched land they ran to the curio shops to buy things which are prepared for them 
mauve and magenta and blue vitriol things by this time they have a murray under one arm and an electric blue eagle with a copper as beak and a yellow a pluribus unum embroidered on apple green silk under the other we being wise sit in a garden that is not ours but belongs to a gentleman in slate-coloured silk who solely for the sake of the picture condescends to work as a gardener in which employ he is sweeping delicately a welt of fallen cherry blossoms under an azalea aching to burst into bloom steep stone steps of the colour that nature ripens through long winters lead up to this garden by way of clumps of bamboo grass you see the smell was right when it talked of meeting old friends half a dozen blue-black pines are standing akimbo against a real sky not a fog blur nor a cloud bank nor a grey dish-clout wrapped up round the sun but a blue sky a cherry tree on a slope below them throws up a wave of blossom that breaks all creamy white against their feet and a clump of willows trail their palest green shoots in front of all the sun sends for an ambassador through azalea bushes a lordly swallow-tailed butterfly and his squire very like the flitting chalk blue of the english downs the warmth of the east that comes through not over the lazy body is added to the light of the east the splendid lavish light that clears but does not bewilder the eye then the new leaves of the spring wink like fat emeralds and the loaded branches of cherry bloom grow transparent and glow as a hand glows held up against flame little warm sighs come from the moist warm earth and the fallen petals stir on the ground turn over and go to sleep again outside beyond the foliage where the sunlight lies on the slate-coloured roofs the ridged rice fields beyond the roofs and the hills beyond the rice fields is all japan only all japan and this that they call the old french legation is the garden of eden that most naturally dropped down here after the fall for some small hint of the beauties to be shown later there is the roof of a temple ridged and fluted with dark tiles flung out casually beyond the corner of the bluff on which the garden stands any other curve of the eaves would not have consorted with the sweep of the pine branches therefore this curve was made and being made was perfect the congregation of the globe trotters are in the hotel scuffling for guides in order that they may be shown the sights of japan which is all one sight they must go to tokyo they must go to nikko they must surely see all that is to be seen and then write home to their barbarian families that they are getting used to the sight of bare brown legs before this day is ended they will all thank goodness have splitting headaches and burnt-out eyes it's better to lie still and hear the grass grow to soak in the heat and the smell and the sounds and the sights that come unasked our garden overhangs the harbour and by pushing aside one branch we look down upon a heavy stern fishing boat the straw gold mats of the deck house pushed back to show the perfect order and propriety of the housekeeping that is going forward the father fisher sitting frog fashion is poking at a tiny box full of charcoal 
and the light white ash is blown back into the face of a largish Japanese doll price two shillings and threepence in Bayswater the doll wakes turns into a Japanese baby with something more valuable than money could buy a baby with a shaven head and aimless legs it crawls to the thing in the polished brown box is picked up just as it is ready to eat live coals and set down behind a thwart where it drums upon a bucket addressing the firebox from afar half a dozen cherry blossoms slide off a bough and waver down to the water close to the Japanese doll who in another minute will be overside in pursuit of these miracles the father fisher has it by the pink hind leg and this time it is tucked away all but the top knot out of sight among umber nets and sepia cordage being an oriental it makes no protest and the boat scuds out to join the little fleet in the offing then two sailors of a man-of-war come along the sea face lean over the canal below the garden spit and roll away the sailor in port is the only superior man to him all matters rare and curious are either them things or them other things he does not hurry himself he does not seek adjectives other than those which custom puts into his mouth for all occasions but the beauty of life penetrates his being insensibly till he gets drunk falls foul of the local policeman smites him into the nearest canal and disposes of the question of treaty revision with a hiccup all the same jack says that he has a grievance against the policeman who is paid a dollar for every strayed seaman he brings up to the consular courts for overstaying his leave and so forth jack says that the little fellows deliberately hinder him from getting back to his ship and then with devilish art and craft of wrestling tricks there are about a hundred of them and they can throw you with every qualified one carry him to justice now when jack is softened with drink he does not tell lies this is his grievance and he says that them blanketed consuls ought to know they plays into each other's hands and stops you at the Hatoba, the policemen do the visitor who is neither seaman nor drunk cannot swear to the truth of this or indeed anything else he moves not only among fascinating scenes and a lovely people but as he is sure to find out before he has been a day ashore between stormy questions three years ago there were no questions the binocular to be settled off-hand in a blaze of paper lanterns the constitution was new it has a grey pale cover with a chrysanthemum at the back and a Japanese told me then now we have constitution same as other countries and so it is all right now we are quite civilized because of constitution a perfectly irrelevant story comes to mind here do you know that in Madeira once they had a revolution which lasted just long enough for the national poet to compose a national anthem and then was put down all that is left of the revolt now is the song that you hear on the twanging nanchette the baby banjos of a moonlight night under the banana fronds at the back of Funchal and the high-pitched nasal refrain of it is Constitution since that auspicious date 
it seems that the questions have impertinently come up and the first and the last of them is that of treaty revision says the Japanese government only obey our laws our new laws that we have carefully compiled from all the wisdom of the West and you shall go up country as you please and trade where you will instead of living cooped up in concessions and being judged by consuls treat us as you would treat France or Germany and we will treat you as our own subjects here as you know the matter rests between the two thousand foreigners and the forty million Japanese a godsend to all editors of Tokyo and Yokohama and the despair of the newly arrived in whose nose remember is the smell of the East one and indivisible immemorial eternal and above all instructive Indeed, it is only by walking out at least half a mile that you escape from the aggressive evidences of civilization and come out into the rice fields at the back of the town here men with twists of blue and white cloth round their heads are working knee-deep in the thick black mud the largest field may be something less than two tablecloths while the smallest is say a speck of undercliff on which it were hard to back a rickshaw wrestled from the beach and growing its clump of barley within spray shot of the waves the field paths are the trodden tops of the irrigating cuts and the main roads as wide as two perambulators abreast from the uplands the beautiful uplands planted in exactly the proper places with pine and maple the ground comes down in terraced pocket on pocket of rich earth to the levels again and it would seem that every heavily thatched farmhouse was chosen with special regard to the view if you look closely when the people go to work you will see that a household spreads itself over plots maybe a quarter of a mile apart a revenue map of the village shows that this scatteration is apparently designed but the reason is not given one thing at least is certain the assessment of these patches can be no light piece of work just the thing in fact that would give employment to a large number of small and variegated government officials any one of whom assuming that he was of an oriental cast of mind might make the cultivator's life interesting I remember now a second time seen place brings back things that were altogether buried seeing three years ago the pile of government papers required in the case of one farm they were many and systematic but the interesting thing about them was the amount of work that they must have furnished to those who were neither cultivators nor treasury officials if one knew Japanese one could colloque with the, that gentleman in the straw hat and the blue loincloth who is chopping within a sixteenth inch of his naked toes with the father and mother of all wheel spuds his version of local taxation might be inaccurate but it would be sure to be picturesque failing his evidence be pleased to accept two or three things that may or may not be facts of general application they differ in a measure from statements in the books the present land tax is nominally two and one half per cent payable in cash on a three or as some say a five yearly settlement but according to certain officials there has been no settlement since 1875 land lying fallow for a season pays the same tax as land in cultivation unless it is unproductive through flood or calamity read earthquake here the government tax is calculated on the capital value of the land 
taking a measure of about eleven thousand square feet or a quarter of an acre as the unit now one of the ways of getting at the capital value of the land is to see what the railways have paid for it the very best rice land taking the japanese dollar at three shillings is about sixty five pounds ten shillings per acre unirrigated land for vegetable growing is something over nine pounds twelve shillings and forest two pounds eleven shillings as these are railway rates they may be fairly held to cover large areas in private sales the prices may reasonably be higher it is to be remembered that some of the very best rice land will bear two crops of rice in the year most soil will bear two crops the first being millet rape vegetables and so on sown on dry soil and ripened at the end of may then the ground is at once prepared for the wet crop to be harvested in october or thereabouts land tax is payable in two instalments rice land pays between the first of november and the middle of december and the first of january and the last of february other land pays between july and august and september and december let us see what the average yield is the gentleman in the sun hat and the loincloth would shriek at the figures but they are approximately accurate rice naturally fluctuates a good deal but it may be taken in the rough at five japanese dollars fifteen shillings per koku of three hundred and thirty pounds wheat and maize of the first spring crop is worth about eleven shillings per koku the first crop gives nearly one and a third koku per tau the quarter acre unit of measurement aforesaid or eighteen shillings per quarter acre or three pounds twelve shillings per acre the rice crop at two koku or one pound ten shillings the quarter acre gives six pounds per acre total nine pounds twelve shillings this is not altogether bad if you reflect that the land in question is not the very best rice land but ordinary number one at twenty five pounds sixteen shillings per acre capital value a son has the right to inherit his father's land on the father's assessment so long as its term runs or when the term has expired has prior claim against anyone else part of the taxes it is said lies by in the local prefecture's office as a reserve fund against inundations yet and this seems a little confusing there are between five and seven other local provincial and municipal taxes which can reasonably be applied to the same ends no one of these taxes exceeds a half of the land tax unless it be the local prefecture tax of two and a half per cent in the old days the people were taxed or perhaps squeezed would be the better word to about one half of the produce of the land there are those who may say that the present system is not so advantageous as it looks before time the farmers it is true paid heavily but only on their nominal holdings they could and often did hold more land than they were assessed on today a rigid bureaucracy surveys every foot of their farms and upon every foot they have to pay somewhat similar complaints are made still by the simple peasantry of india for if there is one thing the oriental detests more than another it is the damnable western vice of accuracy that leads to doing things by rule still by the look of those terraced fields where the water is led so cunningly from level to level the japanese cultivator must enjoy at least one excitement 
if the villages up the valley tamper with the water supply there must surely be excitement down the valley argument protest and the breaking of heads the days of romance therefore are not all dead this that follows happened on the coast twenty miles through the fields from yokohama at kamakura that's to say where the great bronze buddha sits facing the sea to hear the centuries go by he's been described again and again his majesty his aloofness and every one of his dimensions the smoky little shrine within him and the plumed hill that makes the background to his throne for that reason he remains as he remained from the beginning beyond all hope of description as it might be a visible god sitting in the garden of a world made new they sell photographs of him with tourists standing on his thumbnail and apparently any brute of any gender can scrawl his or its ignoble name over the inside of the massive bronze plates that make him up think for a moment of the indignity and the insult imagine the ancient orderly gardens with their clipped trees shorn turf and silent ponds smoking in the mist that the hot sun soaks up after rain and the green bronze image of the teacher of the law wavering there as it half seems through incense clouds the earth is all one censer and myriads of frogs are making up the haze ring it is too warm to do more than to sit on a stone and watch the eyes that having seen all things see no more the down-dropped eyes the forward droop of the head and the colossal simplicity of the folds of the robe over arm and knee thus and in no other fashion did buddha sit in the old days when ananda asked questions and the dreamer began to dream of the lives that lay behind him ere the lips moved and as the chronicles say he told a tale this would be the way he began for dreamers in the east tell something the same sort of tales today long ago when devata was king of benares there lived a virtuous elephant a reprobate ox and a king without understanding and the tale would end after the moral had been drawn for ananda's benefit now the reprobate ox was such an one and the king was such another but the virtuous elephant was i myself ananda thus then he told the tales in the bamboo grove and the bamboo grove is there today little blue and grey and slate robed figures pass under its shadow by two or three joss-sticks disappear into the shrine that is the body of the god come out smiling and drift away through the shrubberies a fat carp in a pond sucks at a fallen leaf with just the sound of a wicked little worldly kiss then the earth steams and steams in silence and a gorgeous butterfly full six inches from wing to wing cuts through the steam in a zigzag of colour and flickers up to the forehead of the god and buddha said that a man must look on everything as illusion even light and colour the time-worn bronze of metal against blue-green of pine and pale emerald of bamboo the lemon sash of the girl in the cinnamon dress with coral pins in her hair leaning against a block of weather-bleached stone and last 
the spray of blood-red azalea that stands on the pale gold mats of the tea-house beneath the honey-coloured thatch to overcome desire and covetousness of mere gold which is often very vilely designed that is conceivable but why must a man give up the delight of the eye colour that rejoices like the cheers and line that satisfies the innermost deeps of the heart ah if the bodhisat had only seen his own image End of Book One, Chapter Three. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org.